and welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Soul. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this podcast, I share intimate interviews with some of the best musicians in the world. In my role at rope I get to interview each artist as we prepare for the release of their latest record. I want to get the backstory, a sense of their intent and motivation around their new release. I've found that given the opportunity, in a relaxed setting, they feel free to open up about musicianship, life, and the challenges of being a professional musician. This week is unique. More often than not, a band is formed by classmates or peers from the local music scene. In this case, the band was performed by the professor. Joe Pinato teaches music at SUNY New York, Oneonta, that is, and inspired by one of his teachers, Youssef Latif, Pinato brought his students together for free-form improvisational sessions without pre-written compositions. The result is Bright Dog Red, the name itself being an odd juxtaposition of words, and they perform spontaneously in the studio and on stage. They don't know what they will play, but they will certainly play. I am here at the Rope It Up office, and I am speaking with Mr. Joe Pinato from the band Bright Dog Red. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So we are talking because we're queuing up an album from this very interesting project. As one might expect, the website is bright red, and that's where I am right now. But I'd like to have a very unique story about how this band came together. So let's start there. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so it has to do with my own development as a musician a little bit. So when I was uh, much younger, in my 20s, uh, or really late teens, early 20s, I studied with uh, Yusuf Latif, and um, he used to run these kind of jam sessions that were sort of all-inclusive. Anyone could participate, uh, and they always were a lot of fun, and really interesting things would happen. So when I became a professor at uh, SUNY Oneonta, where I teach now, I started doing it at the end of the semester with uh, some students from my ensembles, and then it became something I would do every couple of weeks, and uh, we would record everything. And, you know, there'd be musicians that liked uh, jazz music, but there would be also musicians from the jam band scene, from hip-hop, uh, EDM. We started having a lot of, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, a lot of musicians that wanted to come in with controllers and do electronic sounds. And so I'd record it all, and it all sounded really interesting. And then uh, I guess about... Three or four years ago, I, I had the idea of, well, what if I did it with a, like a loose group of musicians that, that were semi-regulars? And we started to build, build some rapport and build some sound. And, and that was the sort of birth of the, the band, Bright Dog Red. So that, that's, that's you and a group of students. Do you want to, uh, let's name them. Yeah, sure. I'm curious if you can comment on why particularly the, those students. I'm sure that you teach a lot of people. Yeah, and so these are all musicians who are now former students, they're all alumni. Uh, there's only one person in the band who's not uh, a former student. I'll get to him in a moment. But uh, the bass player, uh, Tony the Colonel Berman, as we like to call him, he, um, he impressed me as a student because he, he came into school, he'll tell the story, he was wearing a Bad Plus t-shirt. And I stopped him in the hall. So you like the bad plush? You ought to come out for jam band, one of the ensembles I direct. So in that ensemble, uh, we had the student drummer was sick for a period of time. So I filled in for a couple of sessions. And Tony then, a very deferential kind of student, said, you know, oh, professor, uh, you know, I, I really like playing with you. I don't know if it would be inappropriate, but perhaps we could play together sometime in the future. So that always stuck in the back of my brain. Um, and uh, I did remember that his playing was really rock solid and he could stay with me and follow me and sort of also lead me at times, which is really great. So I always had Tony in the back of my mind for, for uh, a band. And then when this band formed, 
uh, I invited him. Uh, another core member is a guy named, uh, he goes by the, the tag Paleman. He's an electronic musician. His real name's Cody Davies. And he was in my experimental music group at the college, and he uses uh, samples, as a lot of electronic musicians do. But what struck me about him is he uses them in a performative manner. So he's not just like looping or playing back samples. He actually uses the samples in real time, doing things like pitch shifting and uh, making time adjustments so that he can actually sort of solo and play over what we're doing harmonically, which is pretty sophisticated. And it impressed me when he was a student, uh, and he's been a major contributor to this band. And he uses a slate of samples that are all original. So they might be, uh, am, you know, environmental sounds or his voice or members of Bright Dog Red have spoken into the microphone for him, and he's used those samples. So between Tony and Cody and me, there's kind of a core group. And then... Um, we, we wanted to have a voice, so we thought about singers, and, but uh, my bands at Oneonta have always had rappers, so I invited um, Curtis uh, Righteous Gunmore. he goes by Righteous, and Curtis um, was the founding rapper in the band. He moved out of the area pretty early in the band's development, so we, he's on the album actually, because we worked with him uh, up until he moved, and we got him to send us some tracks. And he was really influential in helping us pick our main rapper, uh, Cully, whose real name is Eric Cullen. And so uh, Curtis sort of came out of this tradition that was like Nas. And he was trying to do that within this freeform, uh, improvised music environment that is Bright Dog Red. And he did an amazing job. And so when he recommended Cully, he recommended him because Cully does things with improvisation that are jazz-like. He doesn't come from a jazz background. He's a rapper. Uh, and he's a producer, but he's really listened to a lot of music. So when he came in, his rapping added a different element. So instead of having a rapper who would rap over breaks or freestyle over grooves, we have that, but we also have Cully's kind of like a, another instrumental voice. And that's sort of been the core band. Um, we've added a couple of others recently. Um, early on, we were pretty guitar heavy, so uh, we wanted to add horns. And a good friend of mine, uh, Jarrett Shields, a professor at NYU, so he sat in with the band and it just it just worked. So he became the first non-Oneonta uh, alum to join us. And so we had a trumpet player, and I've always been a big fan of those kind of classic uh, groups of the 60s, 50s and 60s in the jazz tradition that have, you know, front line of trumpet and tenor saxophone. So I invited a former student, Mike LeBombard, to come in on sax. Uh, and Mike's been really, really incredible. And... Um, He's a great player. Uh, he brings uh, a lot of experience in the jam band scene. He plays with a Philly band called the Royal Noise. And so uh, that's sort of the core group. We do have two other people who are on the album as a, a guest. They're former guitarists who played with the band uh, and probably will record with us in the future. Zach Westbrook, who's a prog rock uh, guitarist from the band Squid Parade, former student of mine, has a very unique style. Um, and then Mike Chemline, uh, who put, on, put down some rhythm tracks. Uh, Mike's a guitarist out of Nyack, New York. So the core group are those members and those other guys uh, have recorded for the purposes of this album and will likely contribute to future projects. Uh, but the core group I mentioned is the one that plays out and the one that most people see when they come out to see the band. Amazing. Amazing. And it brings up so many questions for me. So, you know, in the process of this band developing, you know, how much of it is a delivered vision that you, that you began with and how much of is it, it is just evolving, sort of improvising as the players arrive, as the different players arrive. Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, 
it's hard for me to give a definitive answer because it kind of waxes and wanes. So early on, my definitive vision would be that this would be a band that would be a free improvising collective of musicians. I'd mix and match. Uh, but I had the idea that they would do my compositions. And even at the very first sort of planning session, I, I gave them some scores to look at. And I said, but don't play the score literally. Just take some ideas. And, uh, and I actually found that that was constructive constrictive of what we were trying to do. So I went back to the, the, the approach I used with those end of the semester jam sessions, which was just say, just play, don't discuss anything. Don't worry about key, don't worry about harmonic language. Whoever starts an idea will follow and we'll see where it goes. So the, I quickly adjusted the vision in such a way that it had to be an emergent concept. It had to be whatever, whoever was in the band at the time was gonna drive what we did. So I mentioned Righteous earlier, when he was our primary rapper, we had one approach, and, and with Cully, we have another approach. They're very closely related. There's continuity from, you know, recording to recording or from performance to performance. Um, but each individual being able to contribute in a way that at the end of the night, uh, whoever's in the audience says, yeah, I, I, I feel like I really heard Jarrett tonight, or I, I, really, I really connected with Cully. Or, um, yeah, the, the, the drumming was like, you know, wow, this jazz drummer, and then we have all these other elements. If, if they can pick something from each of us and take it away from our sets, then, then I've realized the vision for the band. And, and my job, uh, you know, we, we list, whenever we list credits, we list my, my role as drums and concepts. And my job is that, is to say, okay, who's on hand from this core group of musicians that plays regularly, and then the larger collective that I mentioned, who's on hand, who's available, and what can we do to start a set. And, and that's really the biggest evolution is we've gone from planning sets really carefully to um, we start a set with an idea and then we just see where it goes. And, and the only constriction is how long we're playing that particular night. So we're playing at New Blue on Friday night. We're playing for an hour. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some suggestions in the beginning. I'll probably assign somebody to start. Sometimes that's me, somebody, sometimes it's somebody else in the band. Uh, but then we just run from there. So it's really exciting because we don't really know what's going to happen. And we often will say to the audience, uh, you know, we're as eager to hear what we play as you are. But it's also, mm -hmm. especially for the younger musicians, you know, the, the, the age range runs from, from uh, you know, as young as 23, the our rapper, to me, I'm 50. So <laughs> there's a widespread and uh, we have every decade in between represented. So, uh, you know, when, when you go out there and you say, yeah, here's an idea, let's just go. And there's an audience. And maybe because, you know, this band's gotten some interest in the, in the New York City jazz scene, sometimes there's really great players in the audience or we have a really great player sitting in with us. Um, and because we often will invite, you know, guests to sit in with us. There's as exciting as it is, it's a little bit intimidating. And that little bit of edge keeps everybody really, really listening, sort of that uh, sense of, you know, anything can happen. So you have to really be uh, tuned in, paying attention to everybody. And uh, that's kind of, you know, what, what the vision has emerged into. And it's been really gratifying. Beautiful. There's a sense of danger, a little bit. Yeah, of there is. That, uh, that, you know, and that, that seems to be a common uh, statement, at least from uh, the, those that are really doing it. You know, I, I wonder how that now translates back into recording an album uh, because, the, you know, the constrictions of uh, studio time might be a little different than just playing a live show, right? Yeah, they, they, they typically are, and we've been fortunate. So, so Means to the Ends, the album that will come out on Ropadope October 5th, uh, we recorded at my studio. I have a studio in my home, and 
you know, sometimes the best things come out of uh, necessity, you know? And so we, we were rehearsing at my home uh, in the studio that uh, is really just a repurposed basement. And we had, a, we had a joke that we called it the disco studio because there's this uh, heat shield on all the walls. The, the basement's sort of semi-finished. It's insulated. And the heat shields give the basement this kind of like, it looks like it's silver lame or like there's a big disco ball somewhere. So we call it the disco studio. Uh, and I just thought it was good practice the way I used to do with the jam sessions years ago to record everything. So I started recording everything. And um, just from years of working in studios, I, I was in the recording industry for many years before getting into education. I just know to like, you know, a little bleed is okay, but if you can isolate things, do it. But if not, it's okay, you can figure it out. So I'd sort of isolate everybody, but not give too much care or attention to it. And, and we just started getting these recordings with this kind of beautiful live quality to them. Uh, but with enough isolation that we could make edits and think about how things might work. So uh, the recording is actually all improvised. Um, there are some tracks that were added later, but when we do that, it's almost always because uh, one of the members couldn't be with us. So we might have five of the six or seven core members. We just do a couple of hours of improvisation and I capture it and, and then my job is to uh, figure out, well, how do I edit this? How do we, are there tracks here? Um, and so in a previous self-produced EP, you know, we did a 31-minute track. That's the whole EP. And it was like, all right, for the first thing we're going to put out as a band, let's, let's just make people aware that this is what they're going to see when they come to see us. Uh, but then in subsequent versions and, and, and in the work leading up to what's going to be means to the end, it's like, wow, there's actually, there's clear breaks, there's ideas, there's punctuation, if you will, in, in the improvisation. So let's find those points of repose and, and pause and, and let's take advantage of them. And so uh, that working, you know, in our favor and then working with a really great mixing and mastering engineer, uh, Paul Jaluzzo, really great engineer. Um, we've been able to come up with something that's really compelling. We've got a great track list, sort of represent all the different styles that the band tends to live in. Uh, because although everything's, you know, freely improvised, like all musicians, we have our preferred, you know, hooks or grooves or licks that will come up or, or at least feelings that, that are sort of born out of who's in the band and what our tendencies are. And so we try to, on the album, represent all those. Um, and in a way, there's kind of a narrative to the titles and to, I mean, it's mostly improvised, right? And, and most of the rapping was freestyle. So there's not a narrative directly in the, in the lyrics, but there's kind of a narrative to the way we've sequenced everything. And um, so that tension between being in the studio and live free improvisation, we've been able to mitigate a little bit. It's certainly still there. I mean, you know, there's times where something to be really killing and you want to include it, but it goes on for 20 minutes and, and figuring out how to, how to edit that down without a, a cheesy fade is, it can be really challenging. I, I kind of wasn't expecting that answer and so well put. Um, but I, I think I wasn't, I was expecting a sort of, well, we have to do things differently in the studio, but it, it's, it sounds, it sounds like uh, the vision is just the, is, is the same and, 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 and you have found a way to execute uh, without, without uh we find so often lately that you know just because you have a set of tools in your toolkit doesn't mean you have to use them all and so we find people doing studio things that they wouldn't normally do live and even sometimes saying well now how do we take this out and play this you know because because it, we can't match us in the studio so that that's a, there's a purity to that that is really compelling and i'm glad we got to that who has done in the past what bright dog red does 
Yeah, I guess there's a couple of bands that um, have inspired us. Uh, certainly for me, one really influential band was a trio on ECM. Um, and the band is called, uh, collectively, they're known as Gateway, but the individual members are um, Jack DeJeanette, the great drummer uh, who's been a mentor of mine. And really early on in, in hearing early recordings of Bright Dog Red would always encourage me to, to you, you ought to take this band out. And, um, and I was always a fan of, of the Gateway Trio, which also featured Dave Holland, the great bass player. So that's an incredible bass drum combination right there. And then uh, the late, great John Abercrombie. Um, they did uh, two recordings on ECM in the 70s um, that are really pretty important in the history of this kind of jazz rock fusion, uh, which is sort of where we fit. Um, but um, they also then did two records in the 90s, and I worked for ECM at the time. So I got to see those records being made. I got to be at the rehearsals for those records and really see sort of the genesis. And I was uh, at that time in my you know, mid-20s. So um, that really influenced me. Hearing those records really influenced me. And then I think um, having uh, Yusuf Latif and Max Roach as teachers, um, wow. they both, at the time I studied with them, were really emphasizing to, to think of inclusive musical approaches because they could, in their own music, they were thinking of this. They, they, they would mention other great uh, improvisers who were doing things like uh, Max uh, and I would sometimes talk about Horace Silver, and in a way, I came to see Horace as like an early fusion musician. He's not thought of that, but he brought these things from Latin music, from, from church music, from other vernacular and kind of soul music, vernacular styles. He brought it to jazz and improvised music. So there's a long history of that, but those are some touch points that were really important for me. And then growing up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, hip hop, synths, electronic music were real important to me. So I was like, well, if I'm hearing my students do all these interesting things across all these different genres, then maybe in that tradition of kind of fusing and creating hybrid music, that's that's what the project should be. So those are those are some musicians that are definite touchstones, uh, touch points that I go back to. It's beautiful. I mean, because it, you know, and we we spend a lot of time wondering, you know, what what maybe not what happened to jazz, but you know, what, where is where is that danger and that that exploration, and then you know on a regular basis we face in the industry, you know, people's people uh, overly categorizing. Uh, and Christian Scott, I think says it best. There's a, the whole set of people out there that think that the best jazz has already been created, you know? And so all the teaching and everything that goes around that is how to mimic uh, what has happened in the past. And, uh, you know, I think some of the people that you referenced would, would, would cringe to know <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that that's a standard now uh, to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, that uh, we're all looking backwards in a way. So it's really fascinating to me. I mean, it, I was going to ask you, you know, why you don't seem to have a concept of age and time in the sense that you've got, you know, hip hop and, you know, all, all these different things happening. But I think you've already answered the question is that, you know, you're, you're hearkening back to the, to a creative era where, where anything goes, you know? Uh, yeah, and, and it's a personality thing, too. It's like, you know, Cody that I mentioned earlier, Pal, who goes by Paleman, he, you know, he's got this persona, Paleman, and he creates these incredible soundscapes using his own original samples, and he does it all improvised. And I thought, it'd be really cool to see what he did with the rhythm section and horns. Like, how would he handle that? And um, so, you know, putting those things together is like, you know, I'm not thinking so much of the musical elements at first as I'm thinking about the people. They're, getting back to your question about the studio thing, because I think it's related to the band being this kind of hybrid and having the free improv. There is um, 
there are times where we have to rethink. Like we're not always playing for an audience at a New Blue or Shapeshifter or Spectrum in New York where they're expecting Bright Dog Red. Well, sometimes we're, we found ourselves a couple times in front of audiences that are very different. So early in the band's history, actually that was our third gig, we got to open for George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. And it was a long process. Um, the promoter knew us. He invited us to submit something. He and his partner said, we love this. We're going to send it to George Clinton's people. And then we heard nothing for a long time. And then um, we got a really great letter that said, you know, Mr. Clinton has listened to this and he would be happy to have this band open as long as their set is 30 minutes long. So I thought, okay, well, that's fair. We're the opening act, but you know, what can we really do that's interesting in 30 minutes? So we, we, we basically came up with a set list, but instead of songs, it was just like five ideas. And part of those ideas included, you know, welcoming the audience, right? You got to do that if you're the opening act. And part of those ideas were hyping the, the headliner, right? You got to do that for any headliner, especially a legend like George Clinton and P-Funk. So then we had like 20 minutes to play with. And within the 20 minutes, we had a couple things. And, you know, where Curtis uh, was the rapper at that time, you know, where's Righteous going to freestyle? And so we worked it all out and um, we did it and, and it worked great, but it was different than we would normally work. But to stay true to Bright Dog Red, about 15 minutes in, it became clear that it was working. The audience was not hostile, which can happen when you're a support act. It was great vibe from the audience. Uh, and so I threw a curveball on, on this big stage. You know, we're playing, a, you know, it was like a thousand seat uh, theater. Uh, I just called out. To, to, to everyone individually. And I said, yeah, we're, we're going to do the next one completely free. And we broke away from our set. And I said, when I signal, we'll come back to the final ending to hype the night. And they just killed it. They, the, the, the guys in the band did a great job. So uh, we do sometimes have to tweak what we do for different audiences. And um, we're always surprised by the response. Beautiful. I, I'm very excited to see this band. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to have to make it a point. I don't think I can get to New Blue but, uh, 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 this weekend, but uh, sometime soon, I hope. Yeah, well, I'll keep you posted for sure. I, I wonder if you could comment, and this is sort of a selfish question just about Rope It Up in general, but I, want, I do want to understand because uh, obviously this is what I do and I reflect on, on the magical things that happen here. But uh, recently DJ Logic came to, to visit and you know we popped on the early Project Logic and the, and the, uh, uh, the Anomaly. Yeah. And we talked about, you know, him hanging out downtown with the jazz cats and, and it's, and I want to know if you agree and I want to know if it refers back to, I can't remember whether you said it was Tony or Cody that was using the samples. Cody. Uh, yeah. Cody. Yeah. Um, you know, Logic's hanging out with a bunch of jazz cats and he get, and he just decides to get up on stage with his turntable and kind of solo, you know? Yeah. Uh, along with the rest. Do you find a similarity to that and what, and what Cody's doing, or do you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also I'll talk specifically about rope -a because logic is really important uh, in general, but also to us thinking about rope -a as a label, because, you know, one of the things I do, I teach a digital music and beat production as well at the college. So I work with a lot of students that are coming from a DJing background or beat production background. And um, the best of them are musicians before their DJs or beat productions. And I don't mean that they play some other instrument. I mean, they play DJ decks, but they play them and approach them as musicians. The way they listen is all inclusive. They're just, you know, 
these sort of young, thirsty musicians that want to listen to everything. So anybody that's got that kind of approach to their instrument, whatever the instrument, it could be a, a push controller, it could be uh, a clarinet, whatever the instrument, if that's your approach, you're going to do something interesting because you're taking from so many different things. And ideally, if you're doing that with that kind of focus, you're going to you're going to express what you've taken in a way that's idiosyncratic and uniquely yours. And that's what I'm looking for for my best students, for sure. And definitely with anybody in his band. It's why Jared, who's not a former student, is in the band because he's just a really great guy. We hit it off personally. I got to hear him play. And, you know, this is a guy who plays jazz music. He's toured with Burning Spear. He's taught uh, high school jazz. He's taught collegiate jazz. He's done music education research. So he's coming from all these different perspectives. So that that's one thing that, to me, separates a guy like Logic. So when Logic was getting up on stage and soloing, it's because he's a musician. And you hear these great musicians, and there was something about what they're doing that appealed to him. So why not, right? And that's one of the things where sort of past history and canons of knowledge can be really limiting to musicians because they don't say why not. They, they say why. Oh, well, you can't do that because, and they explain. And, and, and really, if you, if you play music and it doesn't sound good, there's no harm, no foul. All right, it didn't sound good. I'll try something else. Like that kind of testing this, trying that is a mark of really interesting musicians. So Logic is somebody that we were really like just tuned into as music fans. And then that's what put Rokadope on sort of my radar in uh, that kind of early history. And then when this band was happening, I don't remember where it happened. Somebody said, you ought to talk to Rokadope. I'm like, yeah, right, sure, as if, you know, because we weren't, we weren't thinking about the band evolving the way it has. And we were just looking to do some gigs here and there. <laughs> and then it started to catch on in New York, and that was the thing. And then, you know, we had people supporting us and uh, coming out to see shows. And, um, and so then, then you start thinking, okay, well, how do I share this work with a, a wider group? So that's the second sort of piece of Ropadope. So the, the Ropadope history with logic that you mentioned, but then there's okay, this seems like a suitable home because we fuse all these different elements and they have a history of putting out music that's either reflective of these elements or fuses these elements in other ways. So whether it's you know Christian Scott, who you mentioned, or other artists that we looked at and said, yeah, these people are doing things that probably at some point somebody said, you can't do that. You can't put that with this or this with that. Um, and they're managing, managing to do it with an artistic vision, and the label has an artistic vision despite having a wide variety of music represented. That's like, to me, a mark of a good label. And then the third and final thing is, you know, when we reached out to you, we said we're looking for a label to partner with. And that is because this is the 21st century. It's a different kind of relationship between labels and artists. And when we had our first conversations, Lewis, you, the things you said were about partnering. You had real clear plans and ideas that were really creative and um, allowed us to produce our work and do something to get it out uh, to people in a way that we couldn't do. So there's really those three elements, uh, the history and people like Logic on the label, the fact that there were people saying to us, hey, this label, you ought to talk to them. And we were kind of thinking, yeah, there's, there's a kind of similar vibe and aesthetic. And then third, just learning about how... Uh, you know, you've really thought about what a label should be in the 21st century, and I think that's really important. There's not, there's a lot of labels that still sort of want to take, you know, the old approach. Well, thank you. I, I can never speak about them, but, you know, just talking this through, and I think a, a final piece without getting too far out at this point, one of the things that's, that's, that's happened lately is, you know, you talk about people, you said why not, as opposed to why, 
And I, I think there's a certain inclination or already a pre either a predisposition or just uh, whatever your history is that a person can feel like an outsider. And it's usually an outsider that tends to make those kinds of why not decisions instead of the why decisions. And it's hard to be an outsider. And I, you know, we've kind of been at the label a little bit of an outsider, but these are trying times in the music business is challenging for everybody. And I think we need to go even further, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, we do a lot of why not over here, but, but sometimes we do a lot of the why in, in, in trying to uh, meet the market, I guess, in a certain way, please some people who are, you know, I mean, Christian can do his thing, but we're, but we're still sending an email out to a particular uh, writer or magazine that, to, you know, in hopes that they, uh, uh, you know, will get what he's doing and not categorize it or, or, or describe it in contrast to the norm, you know? So uh, this is exciting to me because I think that what this, what you and, the, and this band embody is that, you know, what, why not? And, uh, we're happy to push and, and eager to push even further out. Uh, I think if we look at history and we look at, uh, you know, things that worked like punk rock and, and, and free jazz and skateboarding and surfing and yeah. all of that stuff, you know, it, it's always the, the outsiders, I think, that, that, that push things forward. So um, this is going to be very exciting. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the world about this record while we have the microphone on. Yeah, just that we're, we're really excited about um, the fact that it, it, it kind of stands as a, as a collection of tracks and um, uh, not that it needs to be listened to that way. It's a perfectly fine a kind of album to listen to track to track or listen to one track. Uh, but, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about an improvised set, and, and you've got, you know, I mean, the original tracks were almost two hours of music. You, you have to make some really tough decisions about what to include and what to exclude. And that becomes then compositional and almost like, you know, composition in, in, in the visual arts where you're thinking about which elements are going to be in the frame and which elements are outside of the frame. And so we had to do a lot of that. So I'm just really pleased that we're able to do that uh, in a way that I think will give people a really good sense of what the band's about and captures. Uh, um, the essence of uh, our live kind of experience. Beautiful. So, so clear your clear your plates, folks, <laughs> and and cue it up from the beginning, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right, Joe. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this. Uh, appreciate uh, your time, and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing the band live. And for those who are listening, uh, check out Bright Dog Red uh, for an October release. Thanks so much, Lewis. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for tuning in to The Station Tapes. If you like what we do, please subscribe on Mixcloud at 21 Soul. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google, and wherever else pods are cast. Our video interview series is available on YouTube at Ropadope99. And you can find out more about the artists we speak with at ropadope.com. Our show is produced by Nick Perry. Our theme song is from Red Hook Soul by saxophonist Michael Blake. You can find more of that at michaelblake.bandcamp.com or on your favorite streaming service. And finally, thanks to all of you who keep the flame burning for independent, quality music. To the musicians who pour their creativity into the world, and to those of you who are taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show.